This is Brother Michael A. Smith, a voice for Freemasonry, bringing to you the Short Talk Bulletin, published by the Masonic Service Association of North America every month since 1923. This, the Short Talk Bulletin podcast, is produced in cooperation with the MSA and is made possible with the generous support of a grant from the Grand Lodge AFNAM of Minnesota. Volume 25, Number 10, from October of 1947. Elias Ashmole. Written by Brother Carl H. Claudie. Interred in a tomb in the Church of St. Mary, Lambeth, the Surrey side of the Thames, are the remains of Elias Ashmole. One wonders at times if they lie quiet or turn occasionally at the storm of suggestion, criticism, praise, blame, speculation, and fancy which two small entries in his diary have created in the Masonic world for the better part of a century and more. Elias Ashmole was an English gentleman of parts and ability, reputation, education, and culture. The eminent English Masonic authority, W. J. Chetwode Crawley, wrote of Ashmole in 1898, quote, Elias Ashmole was born at Litchfield in 1617, just a hundred years before the birth of the Grand Lodge that has spread throughout the world the speculative Freemasonry of which his diary gives us the first assured notice. His father, a saddler by trade and a soldier by choice, was fain to secure a career for his son by entering him as a singing boy in the cathedral choir of his native city. The boy so profited by his education that, on going to London, he succeeded in getting himself admitted as a solicitor in 1638 at the earliest legal age. In the same year, he greatly bettered his social position by marrying the daughter of Peter Mainwaring, a Cheshire landowner. When the Great Rebellion broke out, he abandoned the forum for the camp and followed the king's fortunes. At first, he served in the ordinance at Oxford, but was shortly afterward sent to Worcester as the king's commissioner of excise and revenue. He presently reappears with the rank of captain in Lord Ashley's regiment. Reverting to his former corps, he advanced to the post of comptroller of the ordinance. It seems odd to read that, amidst this bustle of war, he found means to enter himself at Bracenose College, Oxford, and to pursue, with no small success, studies that suited the future herald, rather than the present soldier or the past solicitor. On the surrender of Worcester in 1646, Ashmole, rid out of the town, according to the articles, and betook himself to his father-in-law in Cheshire. This was a momentous visit for Freemasons, for, while ensconcing himself from the Roundheads, he was made a Freemason at Warrington. From Cheshire he came to London, and grew into intimacy with the three most noted astrologers of the time, Moore, Lilly, and Booker. His first wife having died a few years after marriage, he contracted a second union with the widow of a wealthy city knight, and stepped at once in affluence. After the Restoration, Ashmole was created Windsor Herald, and elected a Fellow of the Royal Society, and was honored with the degree of M.D. by the University of Oxford. On the death of his second wife, 
Ashmole took for a third the daughter of Sir William Dugdale, his chief friend. He had long since bid a civil farewell to the astrologers and alchemists who had been the friends of his middle life. In 1682, he again attended Lodge, this time in London, and left in his diary the only record of the meeting, just as he had done for the Lodge at Warrington 35 years before. In 1683, he bestowed on the University of Oxford the magnificent collection known as the Ashmolean Museum, which he had spent half his lifetime in amassing. He died in 1692, having led a life of almost bewildering diversity. Chorister, solicitor, artilleryman, commissioner of excise, cavalry captain, astrologer, alchemist, botanist, antiquary, historian, herald, collector of curiosities, and doctor of medicine. It is no wonder he added Freemason to his string of titles to consideration. End of quote. But for all of his local fame and evident culture, he might be as unknown to Freemasonry as the most anonymous of his brethren, had he not written those two small entries in his diary, which have been examined, analyzed, commented on, fought over, and made the basis for countless papers and publications. Here are the entries which, seemingly innocent enough, have brought him Masonic fame such as has come to none of his contemporaries. Quote, 1646, October 16th, 4.30 p.m. I was made a Freemason at Warrington in Lancashire with Colonel Henry Mainwaring of Carincham in Cheshire. The names of those that were then of the lodge, Mr. Richard Penkett Warden, Mr. James Collier, Mr. Rich, Shanky, Henry Littler, John Ellum, Ellum and Hugh Brewer. 1682, March 10, about 5 p.m. I received a summons to appear at a lodge to be held the next day at Mason's Hall, London. March 11, accordingly I went and about noon were admitted into the fellowship of Freemasons, Sir William Wilson, Knight, Captain Richard Borthwick, Mr. William Woodman, Mr. William Wise. I was the senior fellow among them, it being thirty-five years since I was admitted. There was present, besides myself, the fellows after-named, Mr. Thomas Wise, Master of the Mason's Company this present year, Mr. Thomas Shorthoff, Mr. Thomas Ahadbolt, Wainsford, Esquire, Mr. Nicholas Young, Mr. John Shorthoff, Mr. William Hayman, Mr. John Thompson, and Mr. William Stanton. We all dined at the Half Moon Tavern in Cheapside at a noble dinner prepared at the charge of the new accepted Masons. End of quote. For many authorities, the first of the entries was evidence that Ashmole was the first English gentleman to be admitted as a speculative or non-operative mason into an English lodge, but riper scholarship soon discovered that he was not. Indeed, the very entry itself seems to disprove this claim to uniqueness, since it mentions another, Mainwaring, also admitted at the same time. Indeed, it is known that one Robert Morey, was made at Newcastle, May 20th, 1641. But so far, 
Ashmole's diary is the earliest self-made written record of any English gentleman who became a Freemason. And because of the reputation and abilities of the diarist, much has been made of his having become a Mason at all, and, proved by the second entry, having maintained some interest in the order for 35 years. Masonic delvers into the past have uncovered much of interest about the Mason's Company, which Ashmole mentions. It was incorporated in 1410 and received a grant of arms from Edward IV. Its rules or bylaws were written in 1356. Was this Mason's Company an ancestor of Freemasonry? Was it anything more than a commercial organization? Did it have a speculative side? Such are questions aroused by Ashmole's reference. Nor have answers been either all of one mind or few in number. No attempt here can be made to settle such a question. But reference is made to The Whole Craft and Fellowship of Masons, a book by Edward Condor, who was convinced that there was a strong connection between the Masons' company and Freemasonry of the early days, the days when the operative craft was in process of being changed to one wholly speculative. Associated with the Masons' Company was some organization, group, or club called the Exception. This body met in the small hall that housed the Masons' Company, and there was a connection between them. Condor says, quote, Unfortunately, no books connected with this exception, i.e. the Lodge, have been preserved. We can, therefore, only form our ideas of its working from a few entries scattered through the accounts. From these it is found that members of the company paid twenty shillings for coming on the exception, and strangers forty shillings. Whether they paid a large quarterage to the company's funds, it is impossible, in the absence of the old quarterage book, to state. One matter, however, is quite certain from the old book of accounts commencing in 1619 that the payments made by newly accepted Masons were paid into the funds of the company, that some or all of this was spent on a banquet and the attendant expenses, and that any further sum required was paid out of the ordinary funds of the company, proving that the company had entire control of the lodge and its funds. End of quote. Freemasonry's change from an operative to a speculative craft is, of course, of intense interest to all who care for the historical background of the craft as we know it. At one time, Masons were wholly and only builders, especially builders of cathedrals. Their skill was hard to come by. Men spent years learning to square and lay stones. A certain amount of geometrical and engineering skill was then, as now, required of both architect and builder. The king's master mason, who had charge of the erection of a great cathedral, was necessarily an educated, intelligent, learned man. Naturally, he wanted only the best and most highly trained workmen for his building. It followed, since a cathedral was long in erection, that he would want to employ young men and train them. Hence, there were apprentices. When a young man was accepted for training, he had first to prove his intelligence, willingness to learn, and character. 
after which he was entered on the records as an apprentice. Later, he became a fellow of the craft, if, after the usual period of seven years, he could make his master's piece, some carving, stone-cutting, laying, designing, or other feature of the work, sufficiently good to assure the authorities that he was able to take his place as a full-fledged workman. It was inevitable that as character and decency entered into the making of an apprentice into a fellow, that morality, truth, justice, and decency should be taught him. How teach him better than by references to the familiar tools of his trade? Hence, and no one knows when or how or by whom, the tools of the workman began to have a symbolic or speculative meaning. The square was an essential. Stones not square could not successfully be used. An unsquare stone threatened the whole wall. The stone had to be right. So had the man. It's not difficult to imagine how the square became a symbol of rectitude. Nor is it hard to imagine how level, plumb, gavel, rule, line, etc. also became associated with the virtues and their teaching. Even the point within a circle was an operative device, since by it the master mason could prove a square. Gradually, other accessories to building became parts of the speculative side of masonry. The lodge, building in which the workmen slept, ate, held meetings, the lights, developed from the windows on three sides of the building, the fourth or north side was against the wall of the structure being built, the aprons which the workmen wore, the mortar or cement between the stones, the cornerstone, the time of labor and the time of refreshment, all easily became part of a simple teaching. This process was not one of a moment, a year, perhaps not even of an era. It was gradual, and of it we know but little. A few old manuscripts, a few references in contemporary literature. These are all the source material of that development which we have. In proportion to their scarcity, compared to the source material in other arts and activities of mankind, all such records become increasingly important. Hence the emphasis put upon the Ashmole diary entries as dating the interest of a highly educated gentleman in masonry an interest which by no stretch of the imagination could include the actual practice by him of the builder's art. Hence, too, the eagerness with which antiquarians and historians have explored every possibility suggested by Ashmole's few words, including his reference to the Mason's Company. But it is not only to that, but to other matters, that researchers have given their attention. Ashmole's diary appeared in print in 1717, 1738, 1747, and 1774. None of the reprints is an exact copy of Ashmole's original. It is in the variations that ground for speculation and controversy have been found. As one near-contemporary wrote, Mr. Ashmole is made to have written abundance of things since his death. Most of the speculation centers about the interpolation of the word by in the printed edition of the second entry. 
he is thus made to say, Accordingly I went, and about noon were admitted into the fellowship of Freemasons by Sir William Wilson Knight, etc. This version makes Sir William Wilson Knight and his several companions, also named, already members of the Lodge and taking part in the ceremonies. Ashmole's original entry omits the word by, which can be interpreted to mean that the several gentlemen named were also admitted into the fellowship of Freemasons, which is decidedly different. The group was either initiated or initiators, but could not be both. There are other differences between the written diary and the printed versions, all of which, while minor, nevertheless throw some doubt, not to say obscurity, over the facts as Ashmole tried to record them. Why printers, editors, and publishers altered his words is in question. Was it because of knowledge, or was it carelessness? Or was it intentional deception, or was it bungling ignorance? One theory has it that by was inserted merely to fill up a vacant space in the original diary, and was done quite innocently. Another theory is that it was an intentional change in the facts, apparently so innocent that it would not be noticed. Other changes between writing and print are minor matters of spelling and capitalization, but taken together are of sufficient importance, at least in the minds of earnest scholars, to provide much material for speculation and attempts to solve the reasons why. However pleasant such bypaths of research may be to those who follow them, they should not be permitted to obscure the main facts which the diary sets forth. That an English gentleman of education and ability was made a Freemason, obviously a speculative Freemason, in 1646. That he retained his interest in the fraternity through a long life. That he was in company of a number of distinguished men of his time on both occasions he mentions and that he found the matter of sufficient importance to include it twice in a diary which is not given, as a whole, to unimportant matters. It is on this basis that Ashmole's place in Masonic history is established. In spite of the expenditure of countless sheets of paper, pounds of ink, hours of time, patient research, and imaginative speculation— the Masonic world is indebted to the famous antiquary for establishing speculative Freemasonry as a matter of common knowledge and practice among the elite of his time, at so early a date. This is Brother Michael A. Smith, a voice for Freemasonry, and this has been the Short Talk Bulletin Podcast, produced in cooperation with the Masonic Service Association of North America for the purpose of providing a common stock of vetted Masonic information to all of the constituent lodges of all of the member jurisdictions, and is made possible through a generous grant from the Grand Lodge AFNAM of Minnesota, who have been engaging and inspiring good men who believe in a supreme being to live according to the Masonic tenets of brotherly love, relief, and truth since 1853.